0: Hi, welcome to Upfront with Canadian NPs. My name's Rachel. This is a podcast where nurse practitioners come together to share, discuss challenges, and inspire. The goal of this podcast is to bring NPs together and build a community in a profession that can often feel isolating. We're here to learn more about NPs working in Canada, why they do what they do, what they love about their jobs, and what inspires them to continue doing the work they do. Today with us, we have Rachel wiebes She's been a nurse for 19 years and graduated from the Masters of Nursing Nurse Practitioner Program in 2013 from the University of Manitoba. She currently lives in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba and works with both PCI Team Clinic and McGregor Health Center. So Rachel, tell us what a typical day would look like for you.
1: Um, yes, so I have a full-time position in Portage La Prairie and 0.8 EFT is uh, is done at the PCI Team Clinic and point two at the McGregor Health Center. So the PCI Teen Clinic is located in the only public high school in Portage La Prairie and the average student population is around 1,400 students. So it's available to anyone ages 12 to 21 in Portage and the surrounding area, so they don't necessarily need to be attending the high school to access service. There is also a private high school in the area as well. So they can
0: just come in and see you, you'd be their provider?
1: right so i could either just work as a as a as a walk-in clinic basis or together with the regular provider or if they don't have a provider i can be their primary care provider during that age but it is something that they can age out of so it's always something i'm cognizant of that there are other resources available to them as they transition out of that age range okay yeah and uh, in mcgregor it's a smaller community of about a thousand people and uh, a large farming community it's about 25 minutes west of portage and there I work one day a week and it's in primary care so it's all ages uh, but there is a greater elderly population in that clinic okay
0: so from what I remember at my time there I think there were uh, it seemed like there were a lot of resources available to the teens like you could send referrals I remember there was a dietitian monthly maybe a lot of mental health uh, referrals so they had a lot of access to help them thrive in school can
1: you tell us a bit more about that sure we've really tried to set it up to make sure we have the most available right on site so that it is easy access and and our whole mandate is just to decrease the barriers to access whether that be traveling or or anything like that and and in part with that we've we offer in-clinic lab testing, so I do blood draws in the clinic, and other types of uh, urine and specimen collection testing right there in the clinic. Okay. Uh, and then we also have different disciplines available to support them in that area as well. There is a dietitian that comes twice a month, and a public health nurse that's available twice a week. Uh, there's full-time AFM services connected through the school, but their office is also located right within our teen clinic space. Uh, as well, we do have a lot of uh, mental health resources. We have an adolescent shared care clinician who was the first one of her kind in our region. And she's been there now two years, and that's been a very great resource. Uh, dealing with short-term counseling options for anyone with mild to moderate depression or anxiety. It's been very helpful to have her present mm-hmm. as well.
0: And then you have the teachers there, I guess, too. You can have you connect with the teachers and, and the other staff in the school.
1: Yeah, we we found a really good working relationship with the PCI guidance counselors, mm-hmm. so. Th- they do a lot for the youth as well, and uh, they also run group DBT programs through the school as well. They're incorporating some basic uh, CBT skills and techniques that they can use starting already in grade nine and kind of working it into the curriculum. So there is more skill building with the youth right in the classroom setting, which has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are, maybe I can also mention, sure. uh, there are other programs uh, up and coming now too that are gonna be additional resources. Uh, Like the online bounce back program for youth, which is uh, it originally opened up in the WRHA and now it's coming out and expanding into some of the regions, which would be more of an online program, CBT program for youth with um, mild to moderate anxiety and depression. Oh, okay. And to access that, yeah, then they would have to be referred in by either a nurse practitioner or physician to access that service. Okay, because there can be a long wait for CBT. Yeah, the community mental health uh, program, there is quite a wait list there. Uh, although also to help decrease those barriers, they do come and meet with the youth right in our teen clinic space too, even oh, though their okay. primary office is in the hospital. But that's quite a, quite a distance from the high school.
0: But I was thinking mm-hmm. the other day, I'm like, it'd be really cool if we could train nurses to do cbt like in like a clinic or something just because it could take a lot of time and it takes a long time for people to get in or they don't want to do the group therapy that's available at hsc or they can't see psych so it's like that's something that you can be trained to do and then just share it with you know and
1: and what i like about the bounce back program is i i see it as a really good fit for the introverted type right so those that maybe are too shy or nervous to be in a group setting Mm -hmm. or are self-motivated and driven, but learn more in a quieter space. Um, then they can do this at home right. on their computer yeah. through booklets. Yeah, and and they, they don't always want to
0: be in a group. So bounce back. Sorry, that's the bounce um, back for youth. That's the online. the, the online that they program. Can go through. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that'll be a really good resource for them. Okay, so I know you do a bit of teaching. I did have you for a preceptor at one point uh, in my um, as a student there. So. Uh, Regarding teaching and research, what kinds of things have you been doing uh, as of late?
1: Well, I love that continual learning process uh, for myself and for others and fostering that and others. So I've been a, a preceptor for the last few years uh, for nurse practitioner students from the University of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Toronto and Athabasca. And I also hold an instructor 2-0 appointment at the University of Manitoba. And so I have participated in some of the MP-facilitated labs and the OSCE, so those abstract, mm-hmm. uh, objective, Structured Clinical Examinations. As far as research goes, uh, I have published an article previously, but I've not spearheaded any research initiatives on my own, although this may have the potential to change in the future. Oh, okay, so what, uh, tell us about the article that you published. Uh, that was back when I was completing the nurse practitioner program, and then in collaboration with Dr. Elsie Duff, uh, I explored the bimanual examinations in asymptomatic well women visits, which was a standard of practice at the time, and that uh, has actually changed since then to not be recommended uh, in the last uh, ACOG guidelines in 2018. Okay, so your article focused on why why are we utilizing the bimanual examination if we have other ways of of testing and screening women that are far more accurate.
0: Okay. Okay. So we'll put that, uh, we'll put a link to that article in the show notes so everyone can check it out if they, uh, they take a moment. Um, so you've done a little, you've done some research, you do some teaching, so as far as extra training goes and you kind of alluded to maybe something something else in the future, tell us a bit about uh, what, what you're thinking and what you've done for extra training. First, let's start with that.
1: So as a, as a believer in continual education, I also wanna challenge myself to continually learn and, and grow. And that would mean right now considering terminal degrees in nursing practice. The two main options being either the Doctor of Philosophy in Nursing, the PhD program, or the Doctorate of Nursing Practice, which is the DNP program.
0: Okay, so yeah, we had Elsie we had talk a little bit about her PhD experience. I understand you've looked into a little bit more of the differences between those two. Would you, would you be able to share a bit of that with us?
1: Sure, no problem. My process of kind of exploring those options was to really connect with a lot of different universities to see how they were offering those programs. Uh, As well, I also connected with a lot of nurse practitioners who had either chosen one route or the other, and then what their motivating factors were. So, uh, though both are considered terminal degrees, you really have to ask yourself in the end, what's your goal by obtaining this? A PhD would prepare you more in advanced education, research, leadership, and policy and procedure development. The DNP program is a clinical-based doctorate, so it would really expand your knowledge base, kind of guiding that transformation of knowledge into practice and addressing real-life clinical practice issues to change policy and improve client outcomes. So currently the director of of the Masters of Nursing Nurse Practitioner program at the University of Manitoba is being run by a DMP-prepared nurse practitioner. So in terms of the differences between the PhD and the DMP, with a PhD being very research-based and focused, Mm -hmm. uh, you can really delve into that more in that context. Um, With a DMP, it is more clinical-based, but it definitely does prepare you for more leadership positions, directing and and teaching nurse practitioner programs It would prepare you well for that. And, and it still is comparable because they are both terminal degrees in the field. Right, okay. So when you are comparing one option or the other, there are several things to consider. So there's the length of time commitment for each program. With a PhD program, you're looking at a minimum of four to five years. It's more on a part-time basis. Uh, with a DMP program, it is a bit more intensive and usually done over the course of two years. But depending on your work life family balance you have to really take that into consideration when you're choosing one or the other Mm -hmm. the other thing is to uh, a cost factor so right now we don't have any canadian dmp programs they are mostly in the states in the united states okay so the cost is definitely much higher for tuition in in the united states than in canada although that will change soon uh, so while I've been making these calls and looking into this, uh, it does seem that the University of Toronto will be rolling out a DMP program starting in September 2020. And the, Univer- the Athabasca University is also rolling out a very appealing uh, looking set of new doctoral programs, including the DMP program. Okay. And they are starting in September 2021. With both of them, they seem to be structured a little bit differently between the two universities right now. So I would still, if you are considering one or the other, look really hard into how they're formatting their programs and what would work better for you as well.
0: So Athabasca would for sure be online. Is is the University of Toronto program? Would that be? They're trying to make it more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. So they're
1: trying to give you an online.
0: Okay. Because they do have an online MP program right now. I'm sure they have the. The resources to be making an online program, but okay, and that and the DNP would take two years, intensive, much more intensive than uh, in a smaller time frame, I should say. Right. Than PhD. Okay. Yeah.
1: So one more thing to add about the difference between the PhD and the DNP programs is that the PhD would focus on really creating an original research project, uh, resulting in a final project in defense of a dissertation, while the DNP program involves identifying a clinical practice issue usually in the area of current specialty and then proposing an evidence-based solution in the form of a capstone project.
0: Okay and so do you mind me asking do you kind of have an idea already of what you'd like to, to do whether I know you haven't picked a program yet but going into it what, what are you thinking?
1: So I really wanted to build on the original article I published back at the end of the MP program where it was assessing the value of the bimanual examination in asymptomatic women. Now in the era of the Me Too movement and people wanting to take more ownership over their health and their bodies, I think it really behooves us to ask the question to have the involvement of clients that we're speaking to, what would be the value of this examination, what are other things we could offer in terms of addressing your concerns so my predominant area right now in practice is is the teen clinic. So in symptomatic women with genital urinary complaints between the ages of fifteen and twenty-five, what other types of testing can we offer besides a pelvic exam or visual examination for all of them at the initial visit? And I think I'd like to explore that more in terms of what is the current research saying? What are the different testing options available? Are we involving people in their own decision-making regarding the testing that we're offering and making sure they're making these informed decisions about their examinations as right
0: well. that's part of our role we're empowering them we have the opportunities to look that up or do research projects on it figure out what best evidence is um, best practices for right now and they don't necessarily know right they're just coming in by manuals just part of the experience and so you're looking at it doesn't have to be that way maybe so
1: right can we have that conversation with them and And often I'll go through different types of testing options and what we can find out with different types of testing. And if they aren't ready for a pelvic examination or a bimanual examination, can we have that conversation of what does that mean? What does a speculum look like? What's involved in that examination? So having some of that, especially in teams, they're nervous, they're unsure. Um, Then how can we educate them about that process? before just indicating that it's it's unexpected. We need to do it, yeah. I also think it's good for us to question ourselves. What do healthcare providers know in terms of the sensitivity and specificity of the bimanual examination in terms of detecting pathology and what other resources do we have available that may be more beneficial?
0: Okay, so in your uh, in your role as a nurse practitioner, what is one of the biggest challenges you've encountered?
1: So I think advocating for the nurse practitioner profession as a whole. Although we're gaining more recognition all the time, there's definitely barriers uh, to us being included in the primary care environment. I currently hold the only nurse practitioner position in Portage La Prairie, yet it's a growing community. There's about 15,000 people, not including the surrounding areas, and people are waiting weeks or months to get an appointment with a primary care provider. So there's definitely room to expand the MP profession in the community, but. There are obviously barriers to doing that. For
0: sure. Well, even the teen population you had, how big is PCI? Is Portage Collegiate Institute, right? So right. how many, you said 1,400? 1400,
1: 1,400 students, yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Do you know roughly how many you, you see? Do you see those numbers at
1: all? Well, if we if we talk about uh, during a day at the clinic, I see on average 15 to 25 visits per day okay. at that clinic. Yeah.
0: And then when you say barriers to, to practice, what, do you, what what would you say one of the biggest ones in, in Portage would be?
1: Well, I think how the primary care services are currently being offered there, the fact that they are being offered solely through one private practice clinic has caused some of those barriers. The... PCI teen clinic where I work is a regional health clinic, so it is funded by the regional health authority.
0: Okay, so there's that, and then you can see people up to the age of teens up to the age of of 21, and then there's just one other private practice clinic, and then otherwise, people are going to the hospitals. Right. The hospital. Right. Okay. (laughs) That's
1: a lot of people. (laughs) That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. people. There's room to have others in there to help offload that but the McGregor Health Center and the PCI Teen Clinic are both regional clinics and so the Southern Health on region is accepting of nurse practitioners and implementing them as a resource in primary care which is why I've had the opportunity I've had to work in both the PCI Teen Clinic and McGregor Health Center
0: so there is room for more. there's room for more clinics. there's a lot of people as a growing community and there's there's room for more providers out there. Definitely. yeah. And so you going out to McGregor as well, how many would you say you see see there in McGregor you go a couple days a week did you say or one day a week?
1: One day a week there. Mm-hmm. So I have about 250 uh, rostered to me at that clinic just because I only spend 20% of my time there. okay.
0: Okay, and McGregor was about half an hour outside of Portia half Prairie, right? Half an hour right? west of Portage. Okay. So what is one one high or positive thing you've experienced in your role as an NP?
1: Well, I don't want to sound cliche, but there's many highs that I've experienced. Um, I think moments that clients have in the clinic. So one woman who came in, who came in in tears and said, this is my last attempt at reaching out to the healthcare profession. My last attempt at even considering my own health, and this stemmed from consistently negative messages she received on presentation to any clinic. And for any reason she came in, it was always attributed to her weight. So mm-hmm. providers could never see past that. And this was so discouraging to her that she basically hid away for a number of years before she tried to reach out and and try again. And I think that as nurse practitioners with a background in nursing, we're very acutely aware of the social determinants of health, of healthcare disparities within different populations, and with really addressing that in a more holistic way and seeing more than the person in front of us, considering all the impacts on their health, whether it comes to housing, food source, transportation, all of these things that can have an impact on a person's health, I think we're more aware of considering that, that larger picture when we see people in clinic and not just so symptom-focused to deal with just one right. issue at a time. Right, and coming up with
0: a plan to meet them where they're at and kind of looking at all those all those factors.
1: Right, right. And I think the fact that we really focus on that shared decision-making component. So we're really trying to shift from that structured, hierarchical, traditional model of of care provision where we just direct and say this is what you do to having that conversation with people together coming up with a decision and a plan that can work for their lives that's Mm -hmm. practical and realistic for them and I think that's a way where we can address those disparities a lot better as nurse practitioners for sure
0: and reach and connecting them with other resources in their community so being aware of those and all the allied health professionals even available and kind of and making sure that Um, knowing where to go not coming to see us maybe for uh, physiotherapy type complaints right that's not necessarily our area of expertise but pointing them towards other resources that can help them
1: Right. I think we underutilize the supports available in a community. So as much as we can be aware of those resources, we can really connect them with what they need. Mm -hmm. Really utilize the public health nurses, really utilize the social workers that are working in the communities to connect them with resources where we might not be able to bridge those gaps, but we can identify them and then also help them connect with somebody who can help bridge the gaps for them. And
0: name one thing you love about being an NP
1: I think it's really the fact that you can be so creative in how your professional path develops. So you can work in primary care, different specialties, education, or even branch off into some of these really new and -and up-and-coming private practice opportunities. My goal moving forward in my own career was always what will give me the most opportunities. I love mentorship. I've received a lot of fantastic mentors on my journey. I love mentoring others along their journeys and I also love the clients whose lives we can impact so positively.
0: What is one personal quality you think helps you thrive in your current role?
1: So I really identify with the qualities of resilience, determination, perseverance. I understand I couldn't be where I am today without all the opportunities I was given to work with. But my driving thought process has always been, if I feel scared or apprehensive to take this next step or face this next challenge, then that's a sure sign that I need to do it. So whether that's challenging myself academically, if I want to seek out different cross-cultural or language or religious experiences to address my own underlying preconceptions, I think it's those moments of facing discomfort that have really been the catalyst of my own personal growth. And because of that, I can also take that back into the clinic and really offer that truly uh, inclusive and holistic care to my clients as well.
0: That's a really great um, example of a growth mindset. I was just reading about that recently, growth versus (laughs) fixed, and that's exactly, that's the wording they used. It was, if it looks like it's going to be hard, then keep going and maybe you should try it. So what inspires you to continue doing the work you're doing? You mentioned there are some barriers. You see a lot of people you're you're driving outside of your outside of Portage la Prairie to do part of part of your work. There's a lot of different things you're you're a busy busy woman. You have children. What what are some things that inspire you to continue t- to do this work?
1: Well, I've really been inspired by the amazing pioneers that our profession has had and the fight that they've had against such strong odds to get recognition for the nurse practitioner advanced practice role in Manitoba. Um, They've made it possible for me to discover a profession that I love and they experience those barriers way stronger than I am currently. And at the last annual general meeting for the Nurse Practitioner Association in Manitoba, I was excited to see that they're gonna establish a historical committee that will record and honor the accomplishments of these brave pioneers. They've been such an inspiration and I hope I can honor their efforts by continuing in my own way to advocate for and advance the profession.
0: Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was nice to nice to be able to connect and, and catch up a bit on what you're doing. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing about the next the next few years and as we move into deciding which program to take. And it'll be good to we'll do a follow up and we can find out how you're finding how you're finding the different programs. That sounds great. And now for some announcements. The news recently discussed Manitoba's new clinical and preventative services plan. The plan outlines the challenges we have in this province with delivering care to rural and remote populations. The article also highlighted some new investments hoping to address challenges, such as Manitobans having access to their lab results via an online patient service portal. I'll leave a link to the article I'm referring to in the show notes. NPAM's annual conference was held just a couple weeks ago. We heard from some great speakers and did some networking and catching up with some of our colleagues. We also had our 2019 AGM where we said thank you to some practitioners finishing their terms and welcomed members into some new positions. The 2019 annual report can be found on your NPAM portal. If you haven't already become a member, I encourage you to do so as this association is a voice for NPs living and working in Manitoba. If you would like to be involved or know an NP we should highlight, send us an email at upfrontnp@gmail.com. at gmail.com. This email, along with a link to Rachel's article, can be found in the show notes as well. If you have any NP-related news or topics of interest, please send it our way. Thanks for joining us.